We're glad that you've joined us today. You know, back in May, I had a little cough, and to prove I didn't have the virus, I went and took a virus test, and they said I had the virus. So in, November, in December, I have a little cough, so I went and took a virus test, and they said I don't have the virus. So if I cough, yes, absolutely. If I cough through it, it just turns out there's other ways to get sick these days. All right. So at any rate, I did want to give you that warning because I have a cough, but I have been tested, and I think I'm good. I will not cough on you, but I think I'm probably not contagious as well. I'm glad you're with us today, whether you're joining us in person, and it's good to see so many people here, and, or whether you're joining us online, uh, welcome today to our service, and Merry Christmas, by the way. Uh, it seems like with all the other distractions in life, it's easy for us to miss the point of what this time of year is all about, uh, but I'm really glad you've joined us today to share in that. You know, uh, I was, uh, was thinking about the message today, and I wanted to take a kind of a little bit of break from Philippians to talk specifically about Christmas. I think now's a, a great time to do that. But there was a question that came to my mind that is particularly interesting during a season of sickness, and, and it's a question that maybe will make more sense as we get in, into it a little bit more this morning, but the question was, uh, and, and many young moms have, have had this ask of them, uh, can I hold your baby? Can I hold your baby? And I, if you're a young mom or a, a mom, you probably remember that, and you probably had that question posed to you many times. And I realize there are two camps of that, two camps of mothers. First of all, there's one camp that whether they say it or not, here's what they're thinking, no, you can't hold my baby. If you want to hold a baby, why don't you have your own baby? Now, most of the time, you're too nice to say that, but that's what you're thinking, and you're like, eh, I don't know about that. And then there's another camp of mothers that says, yes, please, hold my baby. Take the baby home with you. Bring it back tomorrow, or bring it back when they're, when they're sleeping through the night, you know? Now, admittedly, that's usually the second, third, or fourth baby that comes along before you're that willing to give your baby up. Some of you moms kind of identify with that, Right. Um, I remember when our kids were little that we had that question a lot. We, you know, with the minister and we knew everybody, everybody wanted to hold our baby. And, and most of the time we did if they were well, but there were just some people that you didn't trust, you know? So oftentimes it was an awkward conversation about how to say, no, I'd prefer you didn't hold our baby right now. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was pretty tough. So whether you're comfortable with other people holding your baby or not, and some of you young moms, maybe you're still dealing with that, you got to admit that a total stranger walking up to you out of the blue, asking to hold your baby is probably going to create a little bit of tension in your life, especially if that were a man, right? It's just going to make us a little uncomfortable. Keep that in mind a little bit, because today we're going to be talking about a baby and not just any baby, but the baby Jesus. And we're going to be talking about this really strange encounter that Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, had shortly after Jesus' birth. Now, to be honest with you, it's kind of an obscure story, and I don't think I've ever even preached a message on this. And maybe you've never even heard of this story before in the Bible, didn't even know it existed there. I mean, we all know the Christmas story, right? We know that the angel appeared to Mary and said, you're going to conceive, you're going to have a baby, and you'll name that baby Jesus. This will be the Son of God 
and he will be a savior to the world. How amazing that was. And then the angel appeared to Joseph and told him a very similar story, the very, the very same thing, uh, that, that he would be the father not to divorce Mary or put her away, but to be the earthly father of the Son of God. And then we know the story about how a census was called, and they were forced to go in the ninth month, obviously, of her pregnancy down to Bethlehem in Judea, several hours, several days actually walk away for the census. And when they got there with no room in the inn, and they were kind of pushed out into the night, they ended up in a stable. The baby was born there, um, laid in a manger. The shepherds in the field came, and they came in. Later on, wise men came from afar. We've heard all that story probably, but what I'm going to talk to you today is probably a story that you never thought a lot about if you ever even heard it. And in fact, there was an entire day of the Christmas story that we don't discuss, you know? Not at all. It never gets any press. It never gets any mention. I've never seen a Christmas card with this story on the front of it or these people. I've never seen uh, a book written about that. I've never seen a movie about it. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, and it's a great story there, but it could be the deepest, most profound view of Jesus' birth that you've ever heard. We might call this the forgotten day of Christmas, but it's an important day, and we're going to jump into it today. So I've teased you enough. Let's look at the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and here's what it says. This is in the latter part of the chapter. The first part of the, of the chapter is all about Jesus' birth, but this is in Luke, chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be (coughs) consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So here's the timeline that we've got on the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born in the stable. Eight days later, Jesus was taken to be circumcised, so they came to the house to do that. It was a small uh, uh, service, uh, Jewish tra- uh, tradition, and then he was formally named at the age of eight. You know, you hear about people that are not naming their babies uh, later this time. Well, in that day, they didn't literally give them the name until they were eight days old. And uh, then he was named Jesus, as the angel had told both Mary and Joseph separately to, to call this child. And by the way, Jesus was a very common name. It wasn't a really uh, unique name. In fact, it would, today it would be like a, an adult having the name of William or John or something like that. But basically what it means, it means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. So it's a very appropriate name for Jesus to have there, but it wasn't all that unusual. And the eighth day was pretty important. Then later on, the wise men are going to come. You know, contrary to what the manger scene often depicts, more than likely the wise men did not come to the stable. You probably heard that before. They were in a house, I'm sure by that point, when the wise men actually came following the star. But there was another important day that happened here, and it was the 40th day of Jesus' birth. And it was called a day of purification and a day of dedication. Because giving birth would make the mother ceremonially unclean, they would go into the temple and they would take a sacrifice uh, to a sacrifice for purification. And so that's what they did. They went into the temple for Mary to be purified ceremonially. But the most important thing that would happen that day was actually the presentation of this child to God. 
And in fact, it's called the presentation. That's, that's what it's called. If you look at it in your scripture, they've got the titles uh, in, front of the, uh, in front of the text and the paragraphs, the presentation of Jesus. Now, <clears throat> this is required of them by the law because they were basically bringing this child and they were offering this child to God. They were giving this child back to God to do whatever service that God might call them to, to do. Now, you might think, well, it would be like them dedicating them to become a priest. And that, that really wasn't the process, especially if they weren't of the tribe of Levi. Uh, but they were bringing this child to God. And symbolically, they were saying, God, this is our child. This is the firstborn. And by the way, if it was a firstborn son, it was all the more important, very significant that they would offer the first fruits. Tony mentioned earlier the first fruits. God said, I always want the first fruits offered to me. So, so many times they would say, this is our firstborn child that we're giving to God. And I got to be honest with you, I always think about this and I smile a little bit because I identify with this personally. Many years ago, in fact, over 35 years ago, Lori and I really desperately wanted a child. And we really did. And we were doing everything we could possibly do. We ended up adopting a son. But before we did that, we prayed and we, ta- we talked and we prayed and we said, God, we want to be like Hannah in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Hannah, Hannah and Samuel? And we said, God, we are desperately want a child. It doesn't have to be a boy in, in our mind, uh, but we want this child. And if we have this child, God, we will dedicate him to you. We will give this child to you. And we, we did that consciously. We're aware of that. And, and, and all of you know probably that we did. We're literally given a child. I'm not saying it works all the time, but literally uh, within a couple of months, we were given a child, a son, not born of us literally, but a firstborn son, and we committed this child to God. Now, let me tell you, you probably know our son lives in Hong Kong, and he does mission work and ministry work over there, very much involved in spreading the gospel, and sometimes we don't see him for a long time. In fact, when we see him again, it will be at least two years since we've seen our son, and I don't like that. I like my kids close. I wish they were all closer, and, and I like to see them. But you know what? This takes some of the sting out of it. When we remember that we say, God, this is your child. This is your gift. If you give us a child, we will dedicate him to you. Now, I'm not saying that everybody does that, and certainly I, if, I, if I were you, I wouldn't want my, my child to go in some of the country and be gone for two years at a, at a time. But you know, it is what it is, Right? And when God blesses us, we understand a little bit better about how God uses what we commit to him. So anyway, that's what they were doing. They were bringing this child and, and committing this child to God. And the official title for this was called, again, the presentation. And they would go and present the child to God. And, and it was a process of taking uh, a, a, a lamb and a pigeon or a dove. Remember, they did a lot of animal sacrifices, animals and birds were laid upon the altar. And if you were poor uh, and you couldn't afford a lamb, then a couple of birds would do. You could buy birds pretty cheap in that day for sacrifice. Now, here's the thing. Mary and Joseph were very poor. They could not afford a lamb, and so they had to give birds. Isn't that kind of interesting that the, the lamb of God was offered to God, but they didn't even have a, a lamb to bring and offer him with? They had to take the poorest of things to give to God. And you know what? As, as we think about Mary and Joseph walking into that temple, can you imagine that? I mean, they were from a small town in Bethlehem. 
We're not even sure they'd ever been to the temple before, but they were bringing their offering into God and they were bringing their child, probably conscious of their worn clothes and their small town look and their, you know, being so naive of what was going on. But they had this baby that they were so proud of and so protective of, and they walked into the temple and there they presented the child to God. But here's what's interesting here. Let's pick up the story in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the customs of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. So let's stop right there a minute. Here we're introduced to a man that maybe you've never heard of before, a man that's new to the story, that there is no background on. His name is Simeon. And we don't know anything about him except the fact that he was very godly, he was devout, he was a righteous man, and that he had been waiting all of his life for one thing. He had waiting his life to meet Jesus. Guys, I want to tell you something. You have one person in your life that you need to meet. That's Jesus. And until you've met Jesus, your life is incomplete. And and Simeon was aware of that. He was longing to see this child, longing to meet Jesus. Specifically, he had been waiting for what was called the consolation of Israel. Now, that's a new title for Jesus. Think about all the names you know that Jesus had. Jesus the Christ, uh, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, you know, the anointed one. Here's another one, the consolation of Israel. Simeon was waiting for this child, the one who would come to console Israel or comfort Israel. Now, why did Israel need to be consoled or comforted? They had been promised this Messiah for hundreds of years, and they had been longing to see him. And now in this time and this place, they long to see Jesus. Let me tell you what was happening about that time. God had been silent for 400 years. You know, throughout the history of Israel, God had been vocal God had been moving and speaking and working through different people, but for 400 years, nothing, nothing. And Israel was suffering. They didn't feel like God's people anymore. They were under Roman rule. They didn't have their own authority. They were, their power that had been great under David and Solomon was broken. They'd gone through a series of kings that destroyed them. They'd been in you know, exile in Babylon uh, for many years and their cities were falling apart. They felt abandoned. They felt empty. Everything was falling apart in their world. But you know what? The Holy Spirit, the power of God that had been moving in the Old Testament, had been moving to promise that there would be a consolation. There would be a comforter to come, a Messiah, a deliverer of the people of God. And so the Holy Spirit had been moving not only then, but was moving as well in Simeon's life. And he had promised Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the chosen one. He would not die until he had seen Jesus. And more than likely, Simeon knowing that a child would need to be brought to the temple to be dedicated to God, that would be the best place to look for a child out of all of Israel, the scattered, scattered people of Israel. The best place to find this child would be in the temple. So that's where Simeon spent his time. And no doubt he spent a lot of time there waiting and listening to the Spirit. And that day, we don't know, kind of intriguing to know, did did the Spirit wake him up early that morning to say, this is the day? Go to the temple, man, don't miss it, you know, look at every child, don't don't overlook anybody. 
But he was moved with the Spirit to go to the temple, and there he would see Jesus. And so Mary and Joseph walk into the, the temple with this baby in their arms, and suddenly Simeon sees the young parents and the child, and he knew this was the one. We can imagine him running to them, rushing over to them, and breathlessly saying, hey, can I hold your baby? <laughs> and them going, who are you, first of all? You know? And being faced with a dilemma, do we hand our baby over? But for some reason, they said yes. They said yes. And so Simeon tucked this baby in his arms and he praised God. I have in my mind a Lion King picture, you know? <laughs> I got a picture of him holding this baby. I don't know if he did that or not. But before God and the music swelling and all that stuff, I don't know. But I got a feeling it was something like that. And he praised God. You know, Mary and Joseph, can you imagine the impact in, in their minds? I mean, they knew the child was special. He was special because he was their child, but he was also special because the angel had said the child was born. Everything had happened just like the angel had said. But now this obviously godly man was publicly announcing. This was, not, this was in the open court, more than likely, not in a corner. He was openly proclaiming and announcing who this was to the whole crowd that was gathering. It was an amazing scene. But you know what? To really understand what's happening here, we got to go back. We got to stop in time and we got to go back and we got to look and see what was happening uh, from a big view. Let's look at, pull back to like a 30,000 foot level and see what God was doing and what he was up to because things don't happen just randomly with God. God has a plan. His plan began long, long before this. So what was God doing and what was this moment all about? Let's go back. In fact, let's go back all the way back. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God. It's a great place to start. It's, you know, it's as far back as we can go anyway. In the beginning God, before anything happened on this earth, God existed. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the three in one. And God then, with the help of the Spirit and the Son, created this amazing earth. And God said this, let us make man in our image. And so he, from the dust of the ground, he took, uh, he made Adam and gave him life, the breath of life. And then from the rib of Adam, he, he made Eve and he gave her the breath of life. And he said, here's a perfect life, perfect relationship in a perfect place, in a perfect relationship with God. But soon we know what happened, right? Soon because of their flesh, because of their humanness, man and woman fell and they fell prey to Satan, and they disobeyed the God who made them and who loved them, and they broke that perfect relationship with, with God. And then that led to total chaos. If we can say it led to hell on earth, it led to chaos. Everything, the dam broke. It's why we're plagued with murder and lying and deceit and sickness and death and problems. It's why COVID-19 is attacking us today and all these issues. It's, it's why also there's emptiness in our world today, not only in people's arms, but in their hearts as well. And we long for that to be healed and restored. Someone said that there's a God-shaped hole in us that we yearn to have filled that only God can fill. Only God can fill because he's the one that's missing in our lives. And so God desiring to fill that hole, he invited mankind back into relationship with him, not by just smoothing over and ignoring the problem, but instead by saying, I'm going to call my people to me. My people will come to me. And so he chose a man named Abraham 
who would be the father of a nation of people that would be the chosen nation of God. Just chose Abraham. He was a righteous man, not a perfect man in any way, but God chose him and he called him out. And then God made a covenant with Abraham to bless him and prosper him if he were be faithful. And then God extended that covenant to all of Abraham's people and renewed it several times in the Old Testament. But you probably know the story that the nation of Israel, which was the people of God, they fell into repeated cycles of rebellion and apostasy and division and exile, and they broke God's heart over and over and over again, as we tend to do. And God called them back to repentance time after time. He, he used godly leaders like Moses and David and Solomon. He used judges like Samson and Gideon and Deborah. He used prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah to call them back to repentance. But over and over again, they still want their way. They still want their own way in spite of God's love and God's forgiveness and restoration of them time after time. And then finally, God intervened in a way that kind of boggles our mind. God said, they surely, if they won't listen to these prophets, they surely will listen to my son. And so he sent his only son into the world in human form. And so Jesus came down, born as a baby, acknowledged by many, including Simeon, and lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross (coughs) to pay the penalty for our sins, which had broken our original relationship with him and our personal relationship with him. He did all of that for us amazingly, and now he invites us into that relationship. He wants us to be a part of him. I love what Soren Kierkegaard, uh, how he explains this. He said, there once was a king who loved a humble maiden and wanted her to love him back, but not as a king. He didn't really want her just to be enamored, uh, you know, because he was the king. He wanted her to love him personally. And so he decided that for her love to be authentic, he would have to do something out of the ordinary. He could have brought her into the palace and said, I'm the king, would you please love me? And she would have, I'm sure. She would have loved him because of what he had. Or he could have brought a procession of people there and swept her off her feet, but he didn't do that. What he really wanted was for her to love him, fall in love with him for the right reason. And so what he did, he left his kingdom, he left the palace, and he went down to be with her as a humble peasant, and he courted her and won her heart. And then he told her who he was. And that's very similar to what Jesus did for us. He could have made us love him. He could have forced us to. In fact, if he had, everyone would have been forced to love him and acknowledge him. But you know what? He wants our relationship to be real and authentic. And so he came down to be one of us, to live among us, born in a small town called Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And that's where Simeon intersect with his path. He had been looking for him for years, believing he would see the Messiah before he died. God had promised him that through his spirit. And then one day the Holy Spirit nudged him and said, today's the day and you'll see the one. Let's look at what else Simeon said or what Simeon said about Jesus. Sovereign Lord, this was his prayer. As you have promised you, excuse me, As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What Simeon is saying is that this child would be the salvation for all nations. 
Remember, at this point, only Jews would have salvation. Only Jews would have a relationship with God. We talked a couple weeks ago <clears throat> about how some of the uh, believers in, in Paul's day were trying to force people to be a Jew before they could become a, a Christian. And, and Simeon's saying, that's not going to happen here. That's not what God's plan is. You don't have to be a Jew to be a child of God anymore. This is the light and the revelation that Jesus was going to bring. And his people would be drawn to him, but maybe even more so the people who are far from God, the Gentiles. But he would offer salvation and redemption to the entire world, bringing peace and hope to everyone. But Simeon wasn't through there. He had one more thing to say, and and part of it's directed uh, specifically to Mary. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, so they were impressed and they were amazed, and of course they knew he was great, but Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the rising and fall, the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. So see, Simeon was prophesying what was going to happen about Jesus. And one of the things he said to Mary is that, Mary, your heart is going to be pierced. What is it? that hurts a mother more than anything in the world. To have a child die, right? To die before them. No, that just doesn't seem right to us. And that was what was going to happen to Mary. A sword will pierce your heart. You will be heartbroken because of this. But he said, Jesus will be a source of hope to the world. But he also warned, he will also be a source of division for the people of Israel. And isn't that true about Jesus Christ? He would bring hope, he would bring salvation to many, but many of his fellow countrymen would not ever acknowledge who he was. Here's the amazing thing, I don't know if you know this or not, but we don't hear a lot about Mary throughout the life of Jesus. We don't hear a lot about her, his brothers, his family members, but I, I believe that none of, his, none of his siblings believed who Jesus was until after he died. Can you imagine if you think about the conflict in your family, not only knowing your son would, would die, but knowing that there would be division and conflict. You imagine what the family get-togethers were like when Jesus was the Son of God and claiming to be so and nobody else thought he was, the siblings, what that would be like. And there was a lot of tension in Mary's house. So if there's going to be tension in your home this uh, holiday season, uh, Jesus knows what it's like too. He understands that kind of tension that was happening there. Some of Jesus' fellow men, some of the Jews would acknowledge him as Messiah, but many, many more would not and still have not. They have not acknowledged who Jesus really is. And his life would be full of tension and confrontation. Many people who said they were seeking God would discover that they could not accept Jesus for who he was. And they would never acknowledge him as the Messiah, the consolation, thereby rejecting God. See how poignant, see how important Simeon's words were. And we never even, we kind of glaze over those, you know. We never even think about them a lot. See, Jesus' coming was not just the most defining moment in history, but it was also the most dividing moment in history when you think about it. Jesus is the most polarizing figure in the entire world. Have you ever noticed how people love to talk about God, but they're really cautious in talking about Jesus? I mean, on TV, you hear God, God, this, here, and that. You don't hear Jesus a lot. They avoid that because he's a polarizing figure, and that's because every person has to decide for themselves who Jesus really is. 
See, Jesus is many things, but he is never neutral. He is never neutral. We cannot be neutral to him as well. He's either the way, the truth, and the life, or he is not. One or the other. One or the other. I love what C.S. Lewis uh, spoke. By the way, C.S. Lewis was a brilliant intellectual. He served as professor at Cambridge University and Oxford University at the same time. He was actually killed on the same day that, that John F. Kennedy was killed. I'm sorry, he died that day. He wasn't killed. He died that day, but nobody noticed that because of everything else. But he, he, was, uh, he served there, and he journeyed from atheism to faith in Christ. Many scholars go from faith to atheism because of their great knowledge, right? But instead, he went the other way, from atheism to faith. And he said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the, the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him down for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so what this scholar is saying is that you must decide what you will do with Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? Will you recognize him as Lord and Savior? Or will you just write him off as some kind of fake? You know, Simeon's obvious recognition of Jesus was that he was the Messiah. He was the consolation of Israel he had longed to see. And he said, you know what? Now that I've seen him, I'm ready to die. My life is complete. There is no greater thing that could happen to me I'm ready to die. We don't even know if he was an old man. He could have been a young guy for all we know, but I'm ready to die. Nothing greater is going to happen. And let me tell you, the greatest thing that will ever happen in your life, the greatest thing by far, will be for you to meet Jesus. So let me ask you a question along that line. Would you be ready today to die? Because you're not ready to die until you've embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior the way that Simeon did. You may be ready for a lot of things, ready to graduate. You may be ready to, to buy your own, your first house. You may be ready to retire. You may be ready to do any number of things, but you, without Jesus, you're not ready to die. And let me just say this one other thing, is that Simeon knew who Jesus was because the Holy Spirit told him who he was. And that's the work of God's Holy Spirit in our life to lead us, to convince us, to direct us to Jesus and to live a holy life. And I think a lot of people, maybe they get a sense or a leading or just a, a direction, some sort of thought about Jesus, but it's so easy for us to quench that and to kill that, distracted by something else. So I would encourage you that if there's a small voice inside of you, which is the way the Holy Spirit works, a voice inside, or maybe screaming out loud, the way he did at Simeon, that this is Jesus, then I would encourage you to respond to him. There would be no greater day than Christmas 2020 with all the world has brought us this year. 
there would be nothing greater than for you today to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to give your life to Him. And I would love to have that conversation with you. Maybe the Lord's prompting you right now to do that. And if so, in just a few moments, I'm going to be down here. Just step up and, and speak to me. Or maybe you want to talk about that in your next step on your journey. I'd love to have that conversation with you.